0: Hello, this is ESPN senior writer Ivan Mazel. Today, Wednesday, November 6th, is the 150th anniversary of the first college football game ever. Rutgers beat Princeton 6-4, and trust me, pretty much nothing that happened that day looks like today's game except that the Rutgers players wore scarlet. As part of ESPN's coverage of the 150th anniversary of college football, we are proud to bring you the Down and Distance podcast with eight stories illustrating how college football has impacted and reflected American culture over the course of 150 years. Here's an episode from the series, and we encourage you to listen and subscribe to Down and Distance wherever you get your podcasts. Over the course of 150 years of college football, no pair of head coaches are joined together quite like Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler. It is impossible to think of one without the other. For exactly a decade, they faced one another in one of the game's great rivalries, Hayes at Ohio State, Schembechler at Michigan. Their games were so closely fought, so fraught with local tension and national import, that they are known collectively as the Ten-Year War. From 1969 through 1978, Ohio State and Michigan played every year with a share of the Big Ten Conference title at stake for at least one of them, every year. The stories of the Ten-Year War are told and retold in the lore of the two programs, handed down from generation to generation. For shock, there was 1969, when Beckler and his first Michigan team had to play number one Ohio State, which had won 22 straight games, the Buckeyes needed only to beat the Wolverines to claim a second consecutive national championship. Instead, Beckler led Michigan to a 24 12 upset, and Woody never forgave Bo for that one. For controversy, there was 1971, when the decision by officials not to call pass interference on a game sealing interception by Michigan sent Hayes into one of his most infamous sideline tantrums. But if you want shock and controversy, not to mention political intrigue, outrage, lasting acrimony, and dissatisfaction so large that college football changed its entire postseason, then pull up a chair. In 1973, Ohio State and Michigan played to a 10-10 finish, a tie in name only. Who won the tie? Who lost it? It depended on what day you asked. Welcome to Down and Distance, a podcast about the history of college football, part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. I'm your host, Ivan Mazel. Today's show, The Tie That Wasn't, We'll tell the story of the one game in the 10-year war that embodied everything mythic about the greatest period in the history of one of the game's great rivalries. Building a winning team is all about finding the right people for the job. That's why college coaches all over the country spend so much time recruiting players they need on the field. And when it comes to hiring for your business, there's no better tool than LinkedIn. LinkedIn provides a vast array of recommended job candidates all in one organized place. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability, LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to LinkedIn.com slash CFB. That's LinkedIn.com slash CFB to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I have a story to tell you, a small interaction that has stuck with me for more than a decade. To tell you the truth, It's really the reason I chose this subject for down and distance. It was a chilly, gray November Monday in Ann Arbor in 2006. In five days, number two Michigan would travel three hours south to play number one Ohio State. This rivalry is always played at a fever pitch, but this particular year, the fever bordered on delirium. Arch rivals had been ranked one and two for five weeks. The build-up to the game had been incessant, unrelenting, always with an air of inevitability. And now, game week had arrived. This game was so big that the coaches' Monday press conferences felt like a playoff event. Michigan put on a show. They had the usual suspects. Head coach Lloyd Carr spoke, and several players spoke. But the most captivating Wolverine was a 77-year-old man, three weeks removed from having a defibrillator implanted in his chest. Bo Schembeckler no longer radiated energy and combustibility the way he did when he prowled the Michigan sideline as a young head coach. He walked slowly. Age had rounded his sharp edges. He no longer hid his affinity for people behind a gruff exterior. Don't get me wrong, Bo still had his growl and his blue eyes still blazed with the competitive fire that won 234 games with the Wolverines. But for the most part, Bo resembled a softened, kindly old coach, until one subject came up. The end of the 1973 season, when undefeated No. 4 Michigan played undefeated No. 1 Ohio State to a 10-10 tie and did not get the Big Ten's Rose Bowl bid. On this chilly-gray November Monday in 2006, Bo Schembechler had four days left on this earth. He died that Friday morning, the day before the Ohio State-Michigan game. But on that Monday, when I saw him, his inner fires still roared, at least on the subject of 1973. I asked Bo a straight question about that game assuming that maybe the passage of more than three decades and the perspective of an elderly man might have cooled his anger. Nope, not a chance. They literally screwed us out of the Rose Bowl, and I mean it just exactly the way I said it. As if anyone within earshot could doubt him. Schimbeckler called it the greatest disappointment of his four decades in coaching. A decision that went against him because of, as Bo put it, Political Bullshit 1973 was year five of the Ten-Year War. The arch-rivals had split the first four games, and in doing so had made the renewal of the rivalry a national holiday on the college football calendar. The games, then and now, felt less like football games than epic contests of will and brute force. Archie Griffin won two Heisman Trophies at Ohio State, He started at tailback for the Buckeyes in four games during the 10-year war. Years later, he looked back on his career and said, I can think of at least three of those games that if we had to play the next week, I probably wouldn't have been able to play. The hitting was just that hard. That was the football that Woody Hayes, Griffin's head coach, believed in. Hayes coined the phrase three yards in a cloud of dust. He saw football as a measure of strength, a determination of who was the better man. Forget deception and trickery. Hayes remained skeptical of the forward pass. His playbook was more like a pamphlet. He didn't care whether the defense knew what play was coming. Hayes believed that if his players were bigger, stronger, and ran the play to perfection, the defense couldn't stop them anyway. Hayes was a conservative on the football field. Actually, he was a conservative off the football field. He counted among his friends the incumbent president, Richard Nixon, who, no kidding, tried to interest Hayes in becoming head of the Peace Corps. Woody Hayes, the coach who assaulted a news photographer one year at the Rose Bowl, who in fury destroyed a down marker. Head of the Peace Corps. You can't make that up. Bo Schembechler may not have been quite as volcanic as Hayes, but his lava ran hot, too. Schimbeckler also worshiped in the church of three yards in a cloud of dust. That's because Bo had been raised in college football by Woody. They began as head coach and player at Miami of Ohio, where Schimbeckler played on the line for Hayes Redskins. That was Miami's nickname in those insensitive times. They continued together for more than a decade as head coach and assistant at Ohio State until 1963, when Schimbeckler left to return to Miami as head coach. Five years later, Ohio State won the 1968 National Championship, ending its regular season with a 50-14 rout of the arch rival that Hayes detested, the Michigan Wolverines. Late in the game, the Buckeyes scored a touchdown to take a 48-14 lead. With the game safely in hand, Hayes rubbed Michigan's face in the loss. Instead of kicking the extra point, he kept his offense on the field to go for two points. Asked after the game why, Woody gave one of the most famous answers of his Hall of Fame career. Because they wouldn't let me go for three. That 1968 Buckeye team may have been the best ever to play in Columbus. But that was no excuse at Michigan. The change needed to be made. A few weeks later, Bo Schembechler took over at Michigan. A few months later... After Bo's Wolverines staged that 1969 upset of the number one Buckeyes, a team that Woody thought was the best ever to play in Columbus, the 10-year war had its Fort Sumter. Everything Woody and Bo did, 365 days a year, pointed toward beating the other one on a Saturday in late November. Cornelius Green played quarterback for Ohio State in the mid-1970s. His teammates called him corny, Years after his career, Corny Green told an interviewer, There's nothing like a Michigan game. We practiced for Michigan in the spring, the summer, the fall. I remember we played Indiana one year, and we practiced for Michigan on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And we practiced for Indiana on Thursday and Friday. Green was a sophomore in 1973, the year of the tie that wasn't. So was Michigan's quarterback, Dennis Franklin, like Green, a slick runner, but also a more accomplished passer. Franklin, like Green, embraced the pressures and expectations that came with such a high-profile job. And there were a lot of both in 1973. It would be the fourth consecutive season that Michigan came into its season-ending game against Ohio State with an undefeated record. Add to that the fact that Schimbeckler, in five years at Michigan, had a record of 17-0 in Big Ten games at the Big House, better known as Michigan Stadium. And one more thing, the home team had won the last six games in this rivalry. All the data pointed to the Wolverines, yet they were three-and-a-half-point underdogs to the Buckeyes, undefeated Ohio State, number one Ohio State an Ohio State that had been groundbreaking, if not ground-shaking, in its first nine games. After Ohio State opened the season with a 56-7 victory over Minnesota, Gophers coach Cal Stoll said of the Buckeyes, they're no longer three yards in a cloud of dust, now they're 12 yards in a mass of humanity. Ohio State had won every game by at least 24 points. Michigan had won all of its games by at least 14 points, with a defense so good that it once went 15 consecutive quarters without allowing a point. The winner would go to the Rose Bowl, per usual. But this season, the winner would rake in more chips from the pot. A victory would provide the inside track in an unusually crowded national championship race. Ohio State, Notre Dame, Alabama, and Michigan all entered Thanksgiving weekend with an unblemished record. Oklahoma was unbeaten with a tie. In that pack, a victory over an unbeaten top-four team would provide separation going into the bowls. What no one knew as game week dawned is that Ohio State had a problem. Specifically, sophomore quarterback Corny Green had a problem. He had chipped a bone in the thumb on his throwing hand which had swelled somewhere south of a melon, but somewhere north of where he could grip the ball well enough to throw. He didn't even practice the first two days of the week. Woody said something to the Buckeye riders on Monday about Green having a knee injury. Uh Uh-huh. It really was his thumb, and he really did have trouble gripping the ball well enough to throw it. Not that Green threw a lot. He barely even threw a little. In 11 games that season, Green threw 46 passes, but his inability to throw would come into play on that Saturday. You know who works hard? Rookies. Sure, they make mistakes, but no one's got more to prove, knowing each day is another opportunity to outwork them all and earn the respect they deserve. That's why after 130 years, Carhartt still approaches each day with the passion and work ethic of a company that's 130 years young. Same hunger, same determination, same giant chip on the shoulder. And in the same way a rookie needs to work hard to earn the respect of their peers, everything Carhartt makes has to keep earning the respect of the hardworking people who wear it. That's why Carhartt still works like a rookie, and why Carhartt will keep outworking them all for the next 130 years, too. Visit Carhartt.com forward slash CFB to learn more and shop this season's hardest working gear. Game day dawned with a chilly rain. The faucet turned off by game time, but it was cold, it was raw, it was just what we've come to expect when Ohio State plays Michigan. What we didn't expect was what Ohio State did when it ran out of the tunnel onto the field at Michigan Stadium. The Buckeyes ran directly toward the famous M Club banner, the one that the Wolverines sprint under when they take the field, and the Buckeyes tore the banner down, a defiant gesture on the opponent's home field, as if this game needed a tone to be set. It became clear in the first quarter that this game would be different for both teams. Ohio State, the 12 yards in a mass of humanity Ohio State, didn't make a first down on its first three possessions. Michigan wasn't making any progress either. But then, on the first play of the second quarter, the Buckeyes began to make things happen. Archie Griffin broke a run for 38 yards. Third two, Griffin. First down for the Buckeyes, and there goes Griffin. What a player. Freshman fullback Pete Johnson, a 19-year-old, 247-pound pile mover, punished Michigan inside. Ohio State kicked a field goal, and in the final minute of the half, scored a touchdown. And right now, big play for the Buckeyes and the Wolverines, and the officials have not put up their arms. The Buckeyes have touchdowns, says the linesman. Archie ran five times for 41 yards on that drive. The Buckeyes led 10 to nothing at halftime, setting the stage to take advantage of a Michigan defense that, in the second half, surely would put more people at the line of scrimmage to stop the Ohio State running game. And in the chess match of football, Ohio State would respond by throwing over it. That's how football strategy works. But that's not how Woody Hayes worked. As we have seen by the stats, Woody didn't have much use for the pass. His team had gotten a 10 to nothing lead by running the ball, and that, by God, was that. After all, his quarterback had a bad throwing hand, so Hayes kept running Archie Griffin between the tackles. Michigan put eight men on the line of scrimmage. Michigan put nine men on the line of scrimmage. Bo Schimbeckler knew how his mentor thought. He knew Woody wouldn't throw the ball, and he was right. The Ohio State play caller in the press box would call a pass. Woody, listening on the headphones, would scream obscenities, and Archie would run the ball into the line again. Ohio State running back coach Ed Ferkamey said after the game, no matter how good you are, you can't beat a good team not varying your attack. We played it too damn conservative. In his book, Buckeye, a study of Hayes during that 1973 season, author Robert Vare quoted an Ohio State offensive lineman on his head coach. Woody choked on us. He got so tight he wouldn't let us play our game. We blew him out that second quarter with Pete Johnson in there. So what does Woody do? He takes Pete out in the third quarter. Why? Because Pete's a freshman and a freshman might make a mistake. Freshmen had been eligible to play college football for only three years. And as we have established, Woody Hayes didn't like change. He hadn't quite bought into freshmen. The year before, he inserted freshman Archie Griffin into the opening game, and sure enough, Griffin fumbled his first carry. Woody didn't put him back into the game, and Archie believed the first carry of his Ohio State career might have been his last. The next week, Hayes did give him another chance. Griffin rushed for 239 yards, a school record. But that was the second game of the season. This was Michigan, with everything riding on it. Another player told there, We could have scored on them easy if we'd thrown the ball or mixed it up a little. But Woody not only has to beat a team, he has to beat them down. He has to brutalize the other team. That's what he thinks football is all about. It wounds his pride to pass. It's admitting weakness. What might Woody have done? What his former apprentice Bo did. He took advantage of a defense set up for the run. With the score 10-3 in the fourth quarter... The Wolverines had a fourth and one at the Buckeye 10-yard line. Dennis Franklin, the quarterback, faked a handoff into the line, put the ball on his hip, and went around the end, into the end zone, untouched. Look at this! Touchdown! Oh, my heavens, what a call! Dennis Franklin, the scoreboard said the game was tied, but the momentum had all tilted to the home team. The big house was roaring. And now, will they go for two? No, I don't think they were. Yeah, but a tie is like kissing your mother. Yeah, you've got nine minutes and, and then on one play, all the momentum stopped, and the seeds of the controversy that would envelop this game were planted. The Michigan offensive line blew an assignment. An Ohio State defensive lineman by the name of Van DeCree went unblocked. DeCree crashed into Franklin, sacked him, and broke Franklin's collarbone. There went the Michigan offense. The end of the game became an offensive comedy. With one minute, one second to play, and the score still tied, Woody bowed to reality that he might need to complete some passes to win the game. He sent in his backup quarterback, Greg Hare, a better passer than Corny Green, even when Green's hand wasn't swollen. But Hare had sat for 59 minutes. He went in cold, and Michigan intercepted his first attempt in Ohio State territory. Michigan kicker Greg Lantry's 44-yard game-winning field goal went wide. Ohio State tried three more desperation passes, and the game didn't so much end as peter out. This was 1973, 23 years before the institution of overtime. Final score, Michigan 10, Ohio State 10. The consensus feeling on both sides, on both sides, was that Michigan would get the Rose Bowl bid. After the game, Woody Hayes, his face fallen, his hand trembling, said, we knew we had to win to go and we didn't. The loss was an Ohio State tragedy. A number one team shoved aside because of the coach's unwillingness to trust his coaches and players. No bowl game, no chance to win the national title. And then, one day later, the tragedy switched sidelines. Every college football season, it takes a lot of effort to get each team properly equipped and ready to hit the field as an efficient playing machine. Same for your business. For more than 90 years, Centos has worked to help businesses big and small look more professional and run more smoothly and efficiently. Great players should focus their energy on the important things, the scouting report, the fine details that will help separate them from the competition. CentOS will handle all the fine details, allowing the team, your business, to focus on what's most important. CentOS has the products and services to help your employees stay safe, from first aid to training and compliance courses. Centos is a proud Fortune 500 company with more than 43,000 employees operating over 500 locations across the United States and Canada. More than 1 million businesses trust Centos to help them open their doors with confidence. Get Centos and get ready for the workday. Learn how Centos can help get your business ready at Centos.com. The controversy that would take hold of the Big Ten was a self-inflicted wound. For one thing, unlike the SEC and the Southwest Conference and the ACC and the Big Eight, the Big Ten allowed only one team to play in a bowl game. It's not as if the Rose Bowl needed the protection. I mean, it's the Rose Bowl. But that was the rule, and Big Ten coaches not named Woody and Bo were sick and tired of it. Illinois coach Bob Blackman heard about it when he recruited against schools and other conferences. In 1973, six teams from the SEC and three from the Big Eight went to bowl games. If a kid goes to a Big Eight school, Blackman told Sports Illustrated, he has a 50-50 chance of going to a big bowl. In the Big Ten, he has a 10% chance. But in 1973... The decision to break a tie was totally in the hands of the league's 10 athletic directors. They would vote, and their decision would stand. Here again, Michigan seemed to have an edge. Five of the 10 ADs had played at Michigan. Ohio State had gone the year before. I know, that wasn't a rule any longer, but that's how people fought. Those are common sense reasons, but in this story, this is roughly where common sense went on sabbatical. For instance, common sense would dictate that someone, either Big Ten Commissioner Wayne Duke or one of the eight voting athletic directors who didn't have a dog in the hunt, would have called Michigan to inquire as to the condition of Dennis Franklin and his broken collarbone. In our modern age, when news travels at 4G speed and the media thinks in terms of right now instead of the next morning's paper, SportsCenter would have had hourly updates. But in 1973, no one called. Well, Duke called the Michigan Stadium press box when he arrived at the Detroit airport after the game Saturday night, but no one ever talked to the Michigan trainer to find out if there was a chance that Franklin might be available for the Rose Bowl. Here's what the Big Ten athletic directors knew. They knew that the Big Ten had lost four Rose Bowls in a row. They knew they wanted to end the streak, and they knew that Michigan might not have its quarterback. And so, on Sunday morning... They voted. Woody Hayes awoke Sunday morning and the disappointment he felt the day before had not lifted. If anything, he felt worse. That morning, the 37-year-old team trainer, Al Hart, died after a long bout with cancer. And Woody faced facts. He knew he wasn't beloved in the league. He never tried to be liked. Never needed it. I thought he would say... The directors would vote for them. Bo Schembeckler, the coach of them, of Michigan, caught a ride with a sports information director on Sunday into Detroit to record his TV show. In those days, when teams were on TV only once or twice a year, coaches had a weekly TV show in which they would show the coach's film and discuss the game. Bo and his SID chatted on the way in about the trip to California. Bo talked about making sure the team enjoyed the trip, about not working them too hard. The car pulled into the parking lot at WWJ-TV, and a passel of writers and TV guys awaited them. A Detroit news reporter approached Bo and said, did you hear the news? What news? They voted Ohio State to go to the Rose Bowl. In his autobiography, ghosted by the great Mitch Album. Bo said he stalked away from the media, went into the TV studio, and began, Kicking everything in sight. Trash cans. Chairs. I have never been so angry in my life. Woody Hayes got a phone call tipping him off as to the result. He was sworn to secrecy. So he called home, and when his wife answered, he began humming, California, here we come. Oh, and he tore up his concession speech. The final vote was 6-4 to four in favor of Ohio State. So, who turned on Michigan? There were more suspects than in an Agatha Christie novel. Half of the ADs may have gone to Michigan, but it was a good bet that none of them had much use for Don Canham, the Michigan AD. More to the point, he had little use for them. Most ADs of that time were former players or coaches kicked upstairs when they got tired of coaching, or when coaching got tired of them. Canham was a promoter, a businessman. His first priority was to put butts in the big house seats. He thought like a salesman. He knew that if he brought high school bands from all over the area to play at halftime, then the parents would come and buy tickets. Canham thought progressively. The other ADs thought like coaches. Canham once called them a bunch of donkeys, Wayne Duke, the conference commissioner, never released the results of the vote. By one account, the envelope containing the votes was destroyed. Schembechler told the Michigan Student Newspaper, The athletic directors and Duke were running scared. After losing four straight Rose Bowls, they needed a winner to help their prestige. Well, the Big Ten has lost any prestige it ever had. I'm disillusioned with the administration of college football. This is why kids are losing respect for America. Yeah, he went there. Bo sided with the pot-smoking, long-haired, Vietnam War-protesting counterculture. And Woody, his mentor, responded. Bo's attitude, Woody said, was... Typical of today where every decision was questioned. The problem today is we don't accept decisions. I've always accepted decisions. That would come as news to the Big Ten officiating crews... But we digress. Schimbeckler accused Duke of engineering the vote. In his book, Bo said, he got Cecil Coleman of Illinois to change his vote and influence some of the others. He'll tell you it's not true, but it is, and I will never forgive him. Coleman said he would have voted for Michigan if Franklin were healthy. In that era before email, Bo got hundreds of letters. So did the Big Ten office. Ed Sherman covered college football for the Chicago Tribune for many years. He has just written an official history of the league. In the book, Sherman quotes some of the letters sent to Duke. A man in Chicago wrote, Since when is a whole team victimized because one player was injured? Another letter began, Dear Little Ten Commissioner, And my favorite, written as the country was caught in the throes of political scandal in Washington, a new Watergate has arisen and a once-proud, decent, and upright conference has sunk to new depths of mediocrity and immorality. That one was signed, In the Lord's Service Always, Robert F. Heft, Pastor, Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church, Hammond, Indiana. Bo didn't stop attacking Wayne Duke, Not in the days following the decision, not after the commissioner put the Michigan coach on a year's probation, and not, as we said at the top of the podcast, 33 years later, four days before Beckler died. In one sense, the athletic directors were right. They sent Ohio State to the Rose Bowl, and the Buckeyes broke that four-game conference losing streak pummeling USC 42-21. If there was any consolation for Michigan, any at all, the tie prevented Ohio State from winning the national championship. In a battle of unbeatens in the Sugar Bowl, Notre Dame defeated Alabama 24-23. The Irish were voted number one. But in another sense, the Big Ten athletic directors were wrong, or at least their reason for rejecting Michigan was wrong. On New Year's Day, a news photographer visited Franklin, the quarterback whose broken collarbone was the supposed reason for not sending the Wolverines West. Franklin said he was pain free, and to prove it, as the photographer recorded it, Franklin threw a snowball. Judging by the actions of the conference, Wayne Duke and the Big Ten athletic directors wanted no part of the spotlight that trained on them at the end of the 1973 season. By 1975, the league had put in two new rules. One, in case of a tie, the Rose Bowl berth would be awarded to the team that had gone the longest since its last trip to Pasadena. And two, more important, the league relaxed its restriction against allowing only one team to play in a bowl. That legacy is Bo Schembechler's gift to the Big Ten and to all of college football. Think of all the big schools in the Big Ten. Think of all those big alumni bases who live in the upper Midwest where the holiday season is frigid. Think of all those snowbird alums who make their way to Florida and to the desert. The bowl business sure thought of them. From 11 bowls in 1974, the last year of champions only in the Big Ten, the number of bowls increased to 15 in 1978, doubled to 22 by 1998, and has almost doubled again. In 2018, eight Big Ten teams went to bowl games. Of course, there are now 14 teams in the Big Ten, but that's a story for another podcast. Ohio State fired Woody Hayes in December 1978, the day after the Gator Bowl, when Hayes slugged a Clemson linebacker who had the temerity to intercept the Buckeye Pass. I don't know if it was a punch heard around the football world, But it is the punch that ended the 10-year war. No offense to Hayes' successor, Earl Bruce, or to any other coach in this rivalry. It just isn't a war without Woody and Bo. In those 10 years, Bo won five games, Woody won four. And there was one tie. Hayes and Schimbeckler renewed their friendship once they didn't coach against each other. Schimbeckler even invited Hayes to speak to his Michigan team, In Schembechler's autobiography, a chapter entitled, Woody and Me Begins, I loved Woody Hayes. I'm not ashamed to say it. For Down and Distance, I'm Ivan Maisel. Down and Distance is part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Down in Distance is produced by Nina Ernest, with help from Scott Siebers, Ryan Nantel, and Jody Avergan. Our engineer is Josh Macri. Special thanks to Alexandria Cooper and Gabe Bassane. The executive producer of ESPN College Football 150 is John Dahl. I'm Ivan Mazel. On our next episode, I'll tell you the story of how college football in the Deep South was integrated in the 1956 Sugar Bowl. And believe me, you'll be surprised at who lined up on which side of the debate. Standing at Armageddon on the next Down and Distance.